0: sermons I'm really excited about preaching this morning. Uh, it goes along with what we've been talking about, it's included, it was already, you know, it was all, the subject material was already included in what I was planning on preaching, and it goes through um, what was already involved in this series that I'm going through, but through this study and, and through um, this series, a lot of this stuff has, has come home to me. And uh, and and I've seen God working working uh, working working this particular material in my own life lately, and uh, it's really opened my eyes, and it's opened up my heart to some things that maybe I maybe I'd forgotten over time, or uh, it's, it's it's just really opened up my eyes to God that this particular this particular sermon anyway, and I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. But just to rehash, what we're doing is we're going through a sermon series that uh, that's entitled "A Good and Beautiful God." It's it's based on a Book by the same title, and we started it kind of several weeks ago. And because of my absence, we've uh, we've had a few hiccups over the weeks. But hopefully, we can we can pick up today and uh, continue and get back on track. <clears throat> but the basic idea of this whole sermon series is us just getting to know God. It's getting to know who God is. It's getting to know what God is. It's learning about. It's understanding. It's really soaking in and really absorbing the nature and the character of God, not what we might think is the nature and the character of God. Maybe not even what we've been taught is the nature and character of God, but what we actually know about the character of God as shown through Scripture, and especially through Christ, through the life of Jesus. Why is it so important to know these things? Why is it so important to know exactly who God is? As simply as I can put it, to be honest with you, I don't think there's any other single factor that is more important to us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, having absolute knowledge in and faith in the true character of God. What we believe about God affects every facet of our lives. It will affect every facet of our lives. And I don't think that's an overly dramatic or hyperbolic statement. I think it'll either what we believe about God will either hinder or will help our relationship with God. I will either hinder or it will help our relationships with other people. It will determine the level of closeness the level of intimacy that we're able to experience in our relationships, and it will affect our spiritual formation. It will affect, in other words, our ability to work alongside God, to work alongside the Holy Spirit as we grow into mature, Christ-like followers of Jesus. Many of us have a lot of clouded ideas about this. We have a lot of clouded ideas about who and what God is. We've come to believe some of these things maybe through our own life experiences, but even worse, (laughs) Maybe we've come to believe some of these things through other people, maybe even something that we've been taught in church, or maybe even something we've been taught over the years through the pulpit. Because of this, what we talked about in the first two sermons and what we're going to continue to talk about throughout the series is that we oftentimes have to unlearn these things. We have to unlearn some of these things that we've learned. We have to identify these false stories, which you guys are going to hear me refer to and already have, have heard me refer to time and again as these false narratives that we have learned. We have to identify these false narratives that we've come to believe about God, those things that reside in the deepest recesses of our minds and our hearts, and we got to replace them with the right narratives, the right stories, the right beliefs that are taught to us, that are clearly given to us by none other than Christ himself. For example, you know, two weeks ago, we, uh, we really started getting into it. We started talking about this idea of spiritual formation. This idea of growing in Christ-likeness, something we focus on a lot here at Bemis. Growing in spiritual maturity. We discovered, you know, that many of us have bought and continue to buy into this false narrative that we grow spiritually by trying harder, so to speak, or by promising that we're going to do better. Or sometimes we think that we're going to conquer the sins that plague us through sheer willpower. We discovered how absolutely false, and we absolutely discovered discovered how absolutely self-defeating these ideas are. And we discovered that the way of spiritual growth that's modeled by Christ is through what I call indirection. In other words, false narrative is that we grow spiritually by trying harder and through willpower. The narrative that Christ models for us is that we grow spiritually through what we refer to as indirection. What do you mean by that? Well, I told you last time, you know, you're not going to find, or at least I don't find, anywhere in the scriptures where Jesus tells anybody to use their sheer willpower to become disciples or to turn into the type of people that Christ, that God wants them to to become. Can't think of anywhere in scriptures where Jesus tells people to try harder. Can't think of anywhere in the life of Jesus where he chastises people for not growing spiritually because they are weak-minded or because they lack willpower. It doesn't exist. You won't find it. And uh, instead, you find Jesus discipling people through what I'm calling and what the book refers to basically is indirection. We find Jesus telling stories. We find him telling parables. We find him telling these narratives to influence people. We find him modeling the ideas and the practices of justice and mercy and love and compassion. We find him teaching people how to pray. We find him hanging out with his friends. And we find Jesus going off in solitude and silence to spend time with God. This is the model of discipleship and Christian growth that he gives that he gives for us. The way of Growth, The way of spiritual formation, in other words, is not through direct confrontation through our willpower, but indirect means by those things in life which affect us the most or which influence us the most. What are those things? Those, well, I told you those things. First of all, go back to the stories and the beliefs that we've, that we've inherited, that we bought into. Also are influenced by the people that we hang around. That's a big one. That's why, we have, that's why the idea of community and certainly in the church is so big. Those are the things that influence us. And, of course, particularly as Wesleyans, we are influenced by the Holy Spirit and by our spiritual practices. That's why we encourage and promote and talk about and talk about and talk about the importance of prayer, the importance of Scripture study, the importance of gathering together uh, as a community, the importance of fasting, all of these things what we call in our tradition the means of grace, these practices, these disciplines that God gives us that we participate in whereby he works his grace through us. It's not about trying harder. It's about submitting more and allowing God to do the work in us that he wants us to do. That's how we grow spiritually. We are, we're not going to do anything but frustrate ourselves and get mad at ourselves if we think that we're going to grow spiritually through sheer willpower. Scripture tells us that. Bible tells us that. So that's just an example. Um, but to me, the particular subject that we're going to talk about today, the narrative and the false narrative we're going to talk about today, is probably the most important that we're going to talk about throughout the series because it gets to the heart. of Everything else that we're going to talk about, everything else that we're going to discover. <coughs> Before I get into it, I want us to, to look at the Scripture real quick. It comes, out the, it comes out of the book of Psalms. It's just two verses, Psalm 145. Verses 8 and 9. Psalm 145, 8 and 9. It says this. The author, the psalmist writes, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. I'm going to reread that slowly and, and, and emphasize a couple of these things. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is rich in love. The Lord is good to all. and He has compassion on all that He has made. There are six characteristics right there. Six definitions of the character of God. Who God is and what God is. And you find some variation of... These scriptures in numerous places throughout the Psalms, by the way, you're going to find some variation of those words. It's almost as if people actually wanted us to understand who God was. Even more interestingly, what you might like to know is that these scriptures and the other variations of it that you find in Psalms are taken out of the words of God himself. Over in Exodus, God tells us who he is. God tells us what his nature is. God tells us what his character is in no uncertain terms during a conversation that he's having with Moses. Over in Exodus 34, this is how God describes himself. He says he is the God of compassion, that he is a gracious God. That he is slow to anger. That he is abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Those are the words of God himself as recorded in a conversation with Moses in the book of Exodus. What you see here is a reflection of those words. Again, it's almost as if the authors of this book wanted us to (laughs) know who God was. The false narrative that we're going to confront today is that God is a mad and angry God. That those types of attributes are what describe and define his nature and character. I'm going to be very honest with you, church. This is the conception of God that I grew up with. I grew up with a God that I understood as being mad, vengeful, angry. That was his character. That's what defined the God that I was brought up with. It's also the number one reason that I fled from the church and that I stayed away from the church as long as I did. It's also among the top reasons that other people stay away from the church and flee from the church because we are taught this notion that God, by his nature, is angry. He's mad at us. The God that I was taught was a God that I was to fear. And I'm not talking about the type of fear that you give to God out of some sense of reverence or some sense of love or some sense of honor. That's one thing. I'm talking about the kind of God that you feared just because he was out there and he was mad and he was waiting for you to mess up. The God I was taught and the God that I understood was itching to punish me. It's who he was and it's what he did. You better stay in line. Here's what the idea was. You better stay in line or God's going to get you. I'm sure a lot of y'all can relate to that. I'm sure a lot of you, uh, at least to some degree, can relate to my own experience. Maybe some of you even still tend to lean in that direction when it comes to think about what you know about God, how God operates, what His ultimate nature, what His ultimate character of Let me ask you this, church. How in the world How in the world would we ever be able to have an intimate, close, honest, open, transparent relationship with that type of God? You couldn't. There's no way. There's no way you could have an intimate, honest relationship with a God whose nature was mad and angry and just mess up so he could get you. You couldn't do it. Number two, you wouldn't want to do it. You wouldn't want to be in that type of relationship. It would be impossible. It would be be like trying to have that type of intimacy with an abusive parent. Impossible to do. The God that I understood back then and the God that I was taught was not a God that, would, that was worth worshiping. If that's how we understand God, if that's understand, how we understand the nature of God, how do y'all think that might affect our relationships with other people? If God's very nature is wrath and anger, vengeance, madness, how do you think that might affect our relationships with other people? Some of y'all know folks like that. Some of y'all know folks who, who believe in a God that leans in that direction, and you can see the direct results of it. You can see how they relate to other people, or fail to relate might be a better way of describing it. You can see how that plays out in the lives of relationships of people who believe in that type of God. Friends, there are major flaws with that. <laughs> there are major flaws with understanding that God's nature Are those definitions. To believe that God's ultimate personality, to believe that his ultimate character, his ultimate nature, everything that defines what God is, are the attributes of anger and madness, condemnation, punishment, and wrath, goes against everything God, first of all, it goes against everything God reveals about himself in Scripture. And I'm just going to make this crystal clear, though, so everybody understands we're all on the same page here. I know that that can be something that's difficult for some of us to struggle with. I know that because I, know that because I realize we can struggle with some of the other things that we read about God in the, Old, in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, right? It's okay to admit that. Those are things that we should struggle with. As a matter of fact, since I've been going through, through this, through this uh, sermon series and these things that we do know about God, I have opened myself a little bit more and I'm wrestling a little bit more personally with Old Testament Scripture and a lot of these things that Old Testament Scripture has to say about the nature, the nature of God and some of the things that God does. Some of the things that we read in the Old Testament are pretty doggone anus. And we don't have to avoid that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't avoid that. Okay? We know who God is and we also have to in- confront some of these other stuff that we, that we read in the Old Testament. That's okay. And I'm looking forward to doing that in my personal life, and at some point I'm looking forward to talking to you guys about it from here. We're going to touch on it a little bit at some point during this series, but I know some of this is hard to struggle with. What I'm talking about is the, I'll repeat it for the dozenth time, the overall nature and character of God, the primary characteristics of God, and it's these, because he says it. There's something very, very false, and there's something very, very, Flawed about the idea that God is anything but these things by His very nature and by His very character. The second thing that makes that flawed is because it doesn't look anything like Christ. Y'all have heard me say it before. Christ, we believe, is God in the flesh. He's the Son of God, fully flesh and fully human. Fully flesh and fully divine. You can't separate Christ, you can't separate the nature of Christ from the nature of God. It's impossible. You can't do that. They are one in the same. And we know through the Gospels who Jesus is. Jesus is pretty plain. He's pretty easy to understand. We can't separate those two. So if the nature of Christ is love, the nature of Christ is mercy, the nature of Christ is justice, compassion, all of these things, slow to anger, rich in love, ergo, <laughs> the same must be true of God. The same is true of God. Hands down. No discussion. You can't argue that. Whatsoever. False narrative. God is mad and angry. Jesus narrative. True narrative. God is good. And God is love. Don't misquote anything I'm trying to say here, folks. Don't misunderstand anything I'm saying. Certainly from time to time, God will and does correct us. Just as any good parent would. However, let me tell you, God is not... Some kind of cosmic Santa Claus sitting up in the heavens with his naughty and nice list just waiting for us to mess up so he can dole out whatever punishment he chooses. That's not God. That's not who he is. That's not what he does. We learned this recently. We learned this recently over a number of weeks in our Bible study on the book of Job on Wednesday nights. Job suffered greatly beyond anything we could possibly imagine. But guess what? It wasn't because of his sin. It wasn't because God was punished. It was for other reasons, but it, it wasn't because he was being punished by God. <coughs> you know, so we learned it from them, but we also learned it through Christ. We learned it directly through the, through the, the words of Jesus himself. Let me give you a couple examples. <coughs> I reminded you last week, or two weeks ago, about the man who had been blind before, uh, prior to birth. And Christ and the disciples walk up on this guy, and the disciples ask Jesus, you know, what did this guy do? What did this guy, who, who sinned, was it him or his parents, that caused his blindness? Because that was something they believed back then. They believed that the child could sin, the child could actually sin while it was in, in the mother's womb, and they believed that the sins of the parents could affect the, uh, the, uh, the health of the child. So somebody obviously had to sin, and y'all remember that I told you that Jesus said nobody sinned. In no uncertain terms, Christ said there's no correlation between this man's condition and anybody's sinning. But he actually took that a little bit further, and I didn't tell you guys about that part. Think about this. Jesus goes, not only does he say nobody sinned (coughs) to cause this, he goes on to heal him. He goes on to heal that man of his blindness. Now think about this. If Jesus believed that justice was being served to make that man blind because of somebody's sin, whether it was his or somebody else's, don't you think he would have just left him blind and walked away? If he believed that he was receiving some kind of just punishment, wouldn't he just left? Probably. That ain't what happened. Not only did he say nobody sinned because of this man's blindness, he healed him. He healed his blindness. And he showed them the mercy and he showed them the love of God. There's another, there's another example in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is asked if some certain people who had, uh, who had died of very, very violent deaths, if they died in the manner that they did because of their sins, because of the, the greatness of their sins. Jesus says, no, absolutely not. There's no correlation between their sins and the manner in which they die There's another wonderful example about how God sheds his grace and his love and his mercy on everybody, not just us. And y'all are familiar with this, with this scripture, Matthew 5:45. Christ says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That sounds like a good God to me. The author of our book sums it up, sums up that, that, that particular scripture wonderfully. And he says this he, in, in explaining it. He says, uh, Jesus is telling us an obvious truth. Just as sunshine and rain are given equally to saints and to sinners with no distinction, so God gives blessings to all those without regard to their behavior. I know that's a tough pill for some of us to swallow. That God delves out his goodness to everybody, regardless of their behavior. Guess what? Most of the time, the way that we behave ain't got nothing to do with what happens to us in life. It's a false belief, folks. God is in the business of doing good to all people. Jerry didn't say that. Christ Jesus himself said that. Terrible things happen to wonderful people, folks. Wonderful things happen to awful people. We cannot look around the world that we live in and build a case that sinners are punished or that righteous people are necessarily blessed. Reality just simply doesn't bear that out for us. Here's what you need to know. The title of this sermon series is The Good and Beautiful God. That's what you need to know out of these scriptures today. That's what you need to glean, and that's what you need to take home and apply to your lives this morning. God is good, God is beautiful. God is not mad at you, God is not malicious. God is not looking at you from a distance waiting for your next mishap so he can mess with your life and delve out punishment. The God that's revealed in Scripture, the God that's revealed in the person, and the teachings of Jesus is good. That is God's essence. Maybe that's a better word than nature and character. That is the absolute essence of all that God is. It is who he is, it's what He is, it's what He does. God is the ultimate expression of love. And that's what you need to know. That's what I need to know. From our heads to our hearts. Just like the sign outside right now says, you are loved. More than anybody has ever loved you, more than anybody will ever love you. It is a love that's beyond explanation. It's a love that's beyond understanding. It's beyond co- a love behind comprehension. It is a love beyond reason. And I realize, I realize that most of us accept that. Everybody in here that, I'm, that I can see right now, I, I know you personally to some degree, and, and we're all Christians in here. Most of us believe in our heads, intellectually, that sta- all those statements I just made. All of us probably believe that idea or those ideas. Most of us, excel, all of us probably accept that on an intellectual level. We understand it. We believe it in our minds. We understand it. We believe it in our theology because that's what's been taught to us. But Do we believe it in our hearts, church? Now this is where the rubber meets the road, brothers and sisters. And we take that knowledge from here and put it in here? Do we take that knowledge, that faith that Hebrews talks about, and do we take it from our intellectual understanding and we put it here in the very depths of our souls? Do we put it in our hearts? Do we understand it? Do we apply it? Do we have faith in it beyond a shadow of a doubt? Because when we do, when we're able to fully accept that, when we're able to fully accept the relentless, these are these are adjectives that I love about the love of God, when we are able to truly accept in our hearts the relentless, the pursuing love of God for us, everything changes. And we understand what grace is. And we understand what love is. And we understand the good and beautiful God that we serve. And we take that good and beautiful love and we throw it out there like confetti into the world. Our relationship with him, our relationship with others, our ability to follow Jesus, to help us grow into what he becomes, becomes massive. When we understand that love that literally pursues us, I pursued my wife for a long time. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about now. That pursuing love. He's chasing after us, man. Chasing after us. Now here's the real game changer. Here's the real game changer. Y'all can like this statement or not. Y'all can agree with this statement or not. That's fine. We'll argue after church. (coughs) But I like to take it a step further these days. And I believe wholeheartedly what I'm about to tell you. Beyond God's love for us. Not only does God love you. Not only does God love me. God actually likes you. Now there's a game changer for our relationship with God. God actually Likes you. How many of us really believe that today? We can accept the fact that He loves us to an intellectual degree. Sometimes it's very difficult for us to think that He likes us, but He does. How would your relationship with God change or increase if you began to believe this simple truth? Scripture tells us that God rejoices in His creation, church. That's me and that's you. God rejoices with us because of what he has created. Because he is pure graciousness and compassion, slow to anger, rich in love, has compassion on what? All that he has made. He actually likes us, folks. He may not approve of some of the things that we do, mm-hmm. but he likes us yes. and he loves us. What if that was our prayer posture when we approach God in our conversations, in our prayer life? I'll be honest with you, church, and I'm sure most of y'all can relate. I'm very guilty, often guilty, of approaching God with this belief and this idea that he's frustrated with me, that he's mad at me, that he's disappointed, that he's disappointed in me. How do y'all think that affects my relationship with God? Sometimes, if I'm approaching a God that I know loves me, but he's really fond of me right now. I'll be even more honest with you. More often than not, that is how I feel when I approach God. That he's disappointed in me. He's not. (laughs) That's a hard truth for this guy to accept. I need y'all to accept it. Help me to accept it as well, and I'll help you. How about that? God doesn't just love us, folks. God actually likes us. What if we can push aside these notions, these beliefs? These false ideas and these false thoughts that God is somehow mad and disappointed and frustrated with us and that God actually likes us, that God is actually happy with us. How would that affect our relationship with God? How would that affect our relationship with other people? How would that affect our ability to work with God and how we grow and how we mature as disciples of Jesus? To actually believe that God was actually happy with us, that he was actually proud of us. What an incredible thought. What an incredible game changer that is. I want to read to you one thing. This this is, again, you know, I'm always, I am always just absolutely blown away with the way that God speaks to me sometimes. And it doesn't happen all the time um, when I'm preparing sermons, you know, but but sometimes, man, he just drops stuff in my lap and I'm, I am just left with absolutely nothing but pure awe in what God has given me and the messages that God has given me. So I'm going through all this and, uh, Y'all can imagine. I mean, that's, that's pretty profound stuff, man. It's pretty profound stuff we're talking about this morning. <coughs> and uh, I'm, I'm going through a devotion, and we were talking about devotions this morning in Sunday school, and I've got dozens of these things at home. So much time I don't even know which one to pick up to read, but uh, exploring these ideas as I was preparing for the sermon this week, and I came across this one, and I'm just going to read it to you. And I want y'all to take this home, man, seriously. I want to take this. I want. I, I want to soak in and I want to absorb every that I just set up there for my own life. Because if I know that I can do that, my relationship with God is going to go to the next level, and my relationship with my wife and my son and with you guys is going to be taken to the next level when I accept the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of God's mercy, the fullness of God's desire to be with me, the fullness of the knowledge that God doesn't just love me. But he wants to be in company, in conversation with me. And I want you all to experience that too. Let's do it together. But this was, the, this was my devotion for one day this week. The guy writes, a fellow, a friend once challenged me. Do you ever reflect upon the fact that Jesus feels proud of you? Proud that you accepted the faith that he offered you? Proud that you chose him for a friend and for your Lord? Is he proud that you haven't given up? Proud that you believe in him enough to try again and again? Proud that you trust that he can help you? Do you ever think that Jesus appreciates you for wanting him? For wanting to say no to so many things that would separate you from him? Do you ever think that Jesus can ever be grateful to you for pausing to smile, comfort Or give to one of his children who have such great need? Do you ever think of Jesus being grateful to you? you ever think about that, that God's grateful for me? Do you ever think of Jesus being grateful to you for learning more about him so that you can speak to others more and deeply and truly about him? Do you ever think that Jesus can be angry or disappointed in you for not believing that he has forgiven you totally? He wraps it up with a scripture from Isaiah 30, 18. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion for the Lord as a God of justice. Blessed are all who want for him. I think we got something to celebrate this morning when we receive Holy Communion, folks. We receive grace every time we receive bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Christ we celebrate his atonement, his sacrifice we celebrate his love, we remember all that I think, I think today we have a heightened knowledge of that, I, at least, I hope you guys do I, I do, and I've been I, y'all can tell, I'm a little excited about this I've been going through this all week man. This, on this cloud of just the realization of how big God's love is that's just the tip of the iceberg, man. So when we celebrate we and we remember Christ through this, you know, we really, I don't think there's words to describe it this morning.